Welcome to Footsteps, the Fort Learned National Historic Site podcast. This season, we're taking a look at Fort Learned's past, present, and future. Today, we're looking at uh, part one of Fort Learned's present. I'm your host, Ranger Ben, and I'm joined by our volunteer, Jeff. How's it going today? It's good. How you doing, Ben? Doing well. Uh, so as we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what drew you to Fort Learned, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, my name's Jeff Weisbeck. Uh, my wife and I are long-term residents living on site in our RV. And this is, uh, you know, we've always been national park enthusiasts. And, you know, like many people, we we visit the park and, you know, we feel great if we have the ability to spend a day and blessed if we have the ability to spend two um, and we looked at the this volunteering uh, for a few months as a way to really dig deeper and really get to understand a site that was very new to us. We're from Buffalo, New York. Kansas is very new. Um, <laughs> somehow I missed a whole bunch about the 1860s to the 1880s when I went to school. Uh, we certainly covered a ton on the Civil War. But nothing relevant to the Santa Fe Trail or what was truly going on out here. So it's been fascinating to live on site, see all the beauty that Kansas has to offer, and really have the opportunity to dig deeper into what makes Fort Larned so special. And that includes not only you know the history of the fort, but also the people who who work here. Absolutely. No, and I mean we are a national park, so uh, there was. I know some of the reasons, but there's obviously a reason uh, that Congress says uh, this is important for us to preserve, use federal monies to preserve. So, so it, it is fun to be able to dig deeper and uh, to find that reason. And sometimes it does take a little bit of time to, to get that. Absolutely. And I tell you, we've done a lot of learning from the staff on site, but it seems like daily a visitor comes in that's going to talk about why the Ford is special to them. And they will be focusing on maybe one of the rifled muskets that will be used. Or some people will come in and they'll be a fan of a TV show. And they have always loved the reference to Fort Larned in that TV show. And they'll come in explaining how important that is. Every day is something different and we learn something with, with the visitors each time. Yeah, and that's a, a wonderful part of uh, working here, and and like you said, learning a lot from the staff. and And today we're interviewing facilities manager Bill Chapman. So he oversees the the day to day operations, be it mowing, historic preservation, you name it. So it was really cool to hear from him and hear just really all that goes into his job. I know he's always busy, uh, so it's kind of cool to get a window into just the nitty gritty of, of what he's busy with and, and the challenges and uh, the unique challenges that come with his, his position and his team. Yeah. To, to me, I, I did not have an appreciation of how he prioritized his work. And it was really interesting to learn that it all started with the mission statement of the park and then the prioritize, prioritization of the different buildings and structures on the park. And that helped guide his decision of where to make his daily and his monthly, like where to put his resources. So it makes complete sense. I just had no idea that it was it was structured that way. So that was that was really interesting to learn about. Yeah. No, it was a lot of fun uh, interviewing him, and we hope you enjoy taking a listen. So here you go. 
All right, so welcome. How's it going today? Going well. All right. So as we get started, uh, as with all of our uh, interviews here, I'm going to get started with your name, title, uh, and then we'll kick it off from there. Bill Chapman, Supervisory Facility Operations Specialist is a new title for Facility Manager. All right. And so you sort of handle what could be called the maintenance side of things? Yeah. The facility operational side, their maintenance. When did your career in the Park Service start? Because I know it's... April of 90. Okay. 1990, yeah. And that started at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, didn't it? Yes, it did. All right. What was your job there? Preservation Carpenter. On the body and restoration project, rehabilitation project, excuse me. That was uh, that was one thing that was kind of funny uh, coming here from Cape Hatteras myself, yep. uh, finding out that you worked there and worked at the the light station that I worked at too. That was kind of funny. Uh, now, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey through the Park Service, what other parks you might have worked at, and all that. Well, I was with the. Cape Hatteras there. I also did hurricane recovery for Hugo and St. Croix, Christian Haven National Historic Site, rebuilt the housing for the government there. Then I went on detail down in Fort Je- Dry Tortugas or Fort Jefferson when Andrew came through, then spent the next seven months rebuilding the three South Florida Park units before becoming uh, an employee of the Flamingo District of Everglades National Park. And then Worked at till 96 when I got permanent. Went from a maintenance mechanic to a boat operator, servicing the backcountry camping sites. And then in the wintertime, when it was our, excuse me, summertime, it was a tractor operator job, mowing the roadside along the 55 miles from Flamingo to the homestead, turn around and drive back on grass. A lot of windshield time. <laughs> <laughs> from there to historic preservation training out of Frederick, Maryland. Actually, out of Williamsport, the last people to work in Williamsport when it was called Williamsport Training Center versus Historic Preservation Training Center. Then we became Historic Preservation Training Center out of Frederick, Maryland, out of Monocacy Battlefield. Worked for them for five and a half years, traveled the country doing different projects for different, not just park service, but forest service, local county governments, historic societies, and stuff like that. Do you have a count on how many different parks and sites you worked at when you were with uh preservation there seven parks three forests one agricultural research service and two private and two uh county owned sites wow that's awesome now we have as we're recording this we have a uh, historic preservation training center working on one of our buildings here too don't we? they're under historic preservation training center they're actually referred to as a maintenance action team okay a mat team they're go fund it they were set up just to handle goa projects and that's the Great American Outdoor Act, is abbreviated as GOA. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to do a project in every Midwest region park. We just happen to have three of them. Four of them, excuse me. We did one last year. Mm-hmm. But we have four projects with them. Yeah, it's good to see that yep. getting done. Now, uh, after what was Williamsport Preservation Center, right. now Historic Preservation Training Center. Where'd you go after that? Here to Fort Larnett back in 02 and been here since what uh, i guess encouraged you to make the switch from historic preservation to facilities manager simple income <laughs> originally started out as just trying to you know advance the career stayed here longer than i wanted but <laughs> we're glad to have you and have you here and and yeah. have you overseeing the everything that goes on here on the facility side of things 
You know, Bill, one of one of the things that I've seen is that the people who work here are, you know, skilled in so many different ways. And clearly there's many options of what you could be doing. So I'm curious to learn a bit about why you started working for the parks when there were so many options out there. I actually was building hotels and condominiums on the Outer Banks. Um, we had a market dry up in the late 80s, 88, 89 range. I was self-employed, and the only thing I can do is go apply for a job, and the only job open at that time was a carpenter position at Cape Hatteras, which I ended up with, and thought it was pretty cool getting paid on rainy days versus not being paid on rainy days. And Perfect. Um, stayed with it. Yeah. I, um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed here is uh, – is the weather is very extreme. And there's there's times when the wind is blowing for days on end, then it'll get very cold and then it'll get very hot. You know, I was kind of wondering how Mother Nature makes your job here at Fort Larned harder. We are experiencing more damage due to heavier, heavier extreme events. We are suffering, one year we had over 175 window panes broken out with a hailstorm. We, our delineation handrail out front of the officer's quarters is a replacement item that was a reconstructed item that has already been replaced once because of so much hail damage that it was the wood would no longer hold the paint. As soon as you painted it, it started popping. Um, constant wind damage, damaging the fences, pushing on them, leaning on them, a lot of wind load on things, just increased maintenance on things. Yeah, and I I also noticed that um, you know one of the 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 very unique and, and nice things about this fort is so many of the buildings are open. People can go in and take a look around, but that also means that whatever's out on the prairie is going to blow into the, yeah. the, the fort o- as the well. The operational so, side of maintenance yeah. too, the cleaning and stuff is constantly. It's hard to keep it up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. You you know. Um, I look at I look around the fort and I see the buildings, but you know, purposely, what's hidden is all the things that go into maintaining and operating the fort, and you know, those are things that support the visitor experience, but they want to be you know hidden from view in in certain ways so it doesn't distract from the historic nature of the fort. Um, could you you tell us uh, what type of services? you and your team provide for the fort? Starting off with the operational safety side of things, we provide three potable water systems, drinkable water for two different locations for public transit. We do have a third pot uh, water system that is park service only, that is guest and employees, or employees basically. But we maintain those water systems. We have infrastructure and waste systems in Seven different septic systems in the park, electrical distribution and electrical transformer vaults hitting inside buildings. Water treatment plants are hidden inside some of the historic structures as well. Storage. Then we have ground maintenance as operational, custodial operational. Then regular building maintenance, just trying to keep things corrective maintenance along with seeking soft funding for Projects for roofing, item, items big ticket that our regular annual budget cannot handle. Yeah, I, it, uh, that's perfect. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I had to start thinking about it, of all the things that are here, to make it very comfortable for the visitor, that we're not here 
back in the 1860s to 1880s. So that's amazing. Also, uh, yeah, the work that you and your team are doing on the reconstructions is is really something, right? This this fort is amazing. Can you tell us about perhaps some of the funny or surprising things you may have found as you're doing some of the work here? Probably the most interesting thing is when we were doing the rehabilitation on the North Officers' Quarters. We did an exposed foundation for tuck-pointing the foundation stem wall and finding the builder's marks for each window location on the stones that are below grade. Wow, okay. And that was probably one of the nicest things finding so far. One of the other projects we were doing with the historic preservation training back in 05, 2005 range was the, uh, we found a stone signed pre-stone fort time frame, the Juan de Jesus, de Jesus stone. Uh, signed in 1859, I believe, and we didn't start construction until 1865 on the stone buildings. Wow. Okay. So, so maybe perhaps one of the first stones somewhere, cut? somewhere graffiti, probably somewhere, and then just picked yeah. up off the field stone and put in place, or an earlier mason. The story's unknown there. Oh wow! And that that was on the work to rehabilitate the north side of the old commissary, right? HS5? Putting the entire building has a new foundation under it, not just the north side. So, yeah, yeah. it was in one of the teardown panels of the stone walls on the north that we found that stone. And that was one of the first sandstone buildings to be constructed. Up to the gun belt. And we pulled mm-hmm. off a of construction and went to the blockhouse, or what yeah. we refer to it as HS10. Now, for our listeners uh, here in some of these numbers, there are, uh, in the Park Service, there's numbers for each of the buildings. And so when we're talking for doing projects and things like that, instead of maybe saying old commissary or post commander's quarters, it's HS5 or HS8 or uh, anything like that. And even the flagpole has a historic structure designation too. Yes, also historic building designation as well. Okay. You have an HS and HB numbers. HBs were replaced with HSs, but it's still in the record somewhere as an HB. Yeah, I've seen both of those in (laughs) in different documentation. And that's standing for historic structure. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Bill, you work with a a team out here that's doing maintenance. Could you tell us a little bit about the different skills that you have on your team? Currently, I have a uh, maintenance mechanic that is geared towards the infrastructure side, which is plumbing, electrical, HVAC, with light duty and carpentry and painting. Then we have a water system operator because we have the three water systems and he has backup for grounds. And that's grass cutting, shoveling, snow, that kind of activities. And then he also worked underneath a former maintenance mechanic, so he knows pretty much the alarm system. So he also serves as a technician on repairing alarm systems. Then I have a custodial part-time that does nothing but cleaning. And then right now I have two a carpenter temporary for doing some carpentry work on projects and a carpenter, excuse me, a maintenance worker that's basically that assistant for that carpenter. And they're working, they've been here about a year, almost a year and a half now. They've done um, window works on the South Officer's Quarters or HS7. They've done a new roof on the Blockhouse, HS10. They've done new boards in the UFO tunnel of the blockhouse. 
Tuck pointed the blockhouse and did the demo work in the commanding officer's building for architectural research coming up later this beginning of November. Second week of November, we'll have architects back to do planning for the restoration of the interior surfaces. This site is also open seven days a week. Yep. And I've noticed that your team is very flexible of what they do. And they're, they're, due to, they're there to do whatever it takes because different things pop up on day to day. And there's a lot of cross coverage, which is, which is really neat. Maybe you could tell us about um, something your team accomplished that made you exceptionally proud of them. Showing up every day is a good accomplishment <laughs> yes. after, the, after the frustration of the day before. Yeah. Um, I just can't limit it to one. I mean, I'm proud of all their accomplishments that yeah. these guys do. I mean, we put all brand new um, sinks and um, photo sensors inside the bathrooms, make, bring them up to more modern versus a old kick-style flushometer to censored flushometer. So okay. people weren't having to hunt all over the restroom to where to flush the toilet because, you know, most people weren't used to a foot-activated one. Right, yeah. Water conservation activities that we've done over the years. Replaced the gravel parking lot for the what the park had for 50 years. It was a gravel parking lot. Gave them a paved road, paved parking lot. Tore out a uh, bridge that had a million dollars worth of damage to it and replaced it with a pedestrian bridge at a new location. Every building's been re-roofed. Some type of interior work done to it as well. The 10 structures. Yeah, you're, the, yeah. These guys have been amazing. Yeah, uh, for the listeners, my, my wife and I live on site at an RV pad at the maintenance facility. And, you know, we were talking that from day one, we felt so welcome there and every people were there to help us. And, you know, the questions that you may have as you're, you know, living in a new area or setting up in a new area, everybody was really eager to, to point us in the right direction or assist us. So we, we immediately felt very welcomed by you and your team when we were on site, which was, which was really great. Uh, one question that, that I have is in an ideal world with the buildings that we have in order to keep them as they are today, we just sort of close this off and, and not let anyone use it, not let anyone inside kind of thing. So how do you, uh, as someone who's in charge of the maintenance that's done on these buildings, how do you sort of strike that balance between uh, visitor enjoyment and preservation? with people using it, with people going inside, things like that, you get the wear and tear. And I know with being a National Park Service site, which is wonderful, uh, it is our purpose to present this to the public. But from, I guess, almost an expense standpoint, uh, it's more expensive to to have these buildings open than it is to show them to the public. So every building we bring online and open up is costly, yes. But the enjoyment for the visitor is a tangible history. If you can't touch it, smell it, play with it, it doesn't exist in their minds. Yeah. To, me, to me, that cost is worth it. Kind of following that, that train of thought, is there a part of the fort that isn't here now that you'd like to see reconstructed? Operationally, no. I don't want to see any more new buildings coming online <laughs> because without without a financial support behind it. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, let's say that you were you had the budget to support something new. Is there anything that you would like to see added? A more a modern visitor center office area and get the mm-hmm. operational side of out of it the historic structure. Okay, yeah. 
And so, that doesn't have to be a reconstructed former military site or anything. It could be a new building in a new location. Okay, so a, a new visitor's building and then return yeah. the barracks to its original... It would probably still be adaptive use. It may be the field ranger's office. It may be where the visit volunteers, how, you know, clothings and stuff will be done versus other buildings that they're currently in. It would not be a total loss of that resource to the public because the museum is designed to fit inside those, that room. It wouldn't. And for those who are listening and haven't visited the fort right now, our visitor center and, and offices uh, are in what was one of the original barracks. Duplexes. Barrack duplexes. Barracks duplex, yeah. Uh, so it housed two companies of infantry, but now it houses our museum yep. and our theater and all that too. I know there has been talks in the past of adding a building for that purpose of, yeah. of visitor contact and, right. and things like that, uh, maybe across the bridge or, or something. Across the bridge, you know, small contact station across the bridge so that there's, that first introduction would be great mm-hmm. versus the long walk from the bridge to the visitor center, which is part of the relocation of the bridge project where we took the bridge that was damaged heavily that was right beside the visitor center and relocated to where the military actually had a bridge at. So it was more an accurate site orientation to pair to the 1964 highway yeah. bridge. And now it looks like it's... Uh, historic wooden bridge versus the concrete bridge that used to be there. Yeah. Uh, although it is is built to withstand emergency vehicles and things like that too, yeah. right? Yeah. It has a 10-ton capacity to run across it. Was there any special uh, challenges that came with ensuring that that was uh, within the abilities of the bridge? No uh, real special challenges at all. I mean, design took it with our demands to make sure we still had that access that gives us Two means of emergency vehicle access to the park, one from the west, one from over the bridge. So if something happens, you got some another way to get in. It probably, the biggest thing, it probably changed the elevation of the parking lot out front. We had to raise that grade probably three to four feet off the existing grade to be able to make a less of an incline for accessibility to go over the height of the pedestrian bridge that was required. I didn't realize it had to be built up that much. Yeah. I guess that makes sense because if you look at the edge of the parking lot, it does kind of drop off a little bit. And we hit it well. Yeah, very well. And with the tall grasses and things like that that we have around there too, that that helps as well. Have you been involved in any of the reintroduction of the native grasses that have been in that area as well? Minor involvement, but yes. Because I know we've been trying to get that back to more native plants, less invasive ones. Right. Actually majority of the work was done as part of the, as a added a feature to the road work the 4h the uh, federal highway federal land category 4 funding allows for that type of work that ex- external not just the road prism and the road surface they allow for that greater picture of managing landscapes doing whatever signage and stuff like that gates that kind of stuff would be in the 4h and the 4 we call it flip in the category four flip funding. Okay. That's what did most of it. So it was federal highways did a lot of it with our design center out of Denver. Okay. The, it was a, their project. We managed a little bit with input, but it yeah. was a federal highway project, actually highway administration project. 
And that's another thing too, uh, within your purview is, and within your, your team is, is, uh, yeah, partnerships and yeah. maintaining that too and mowing yeah. it. One thing that I had heard and maybe you can comment on is that the, the walkways under the porches were actually raised slightly. We were talking about the, the parking lot being raised to, to improve accessibility. I'd also heard from someone, I believe, that the porches were raised up to provide yeah, better accessibility. Yes. Yeah. We're, um, can you talk a little bit about that discussion, how that went on and how that solution was obtained? The discussion is by registered, or excuse me, public law. So there, okay. was, there was really no discussion. We needed, <laughs> we were altering things. So when we alter things, we had to come in compliant with modern laws. So at that time, we had to come in compliant with the American Barriers Act or Architecture Barrier Act, part of the ADA, which meant less than a half inch incline over top of a threshold. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking at the porches, it blends so well. It had to be pointed out to me that there was a yeah. It, there's a difference. Basically, five and a half inches taller. What it was is a vertical two by six put up on top of the. Well, realize that underneath of that was a concrete slab from the 1974 re- rehabilitations. Okay. Of the forts, so there's a wood framework sitting on top of a concrete slab with the wood deck on top of that. Understood. All right. And that's the we're talking about the porches right in front of. The barracks. The barracks and hospital, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was, um, so historically that would have been a step down out of that, out of those front doors. We've also done it to the north and south officers' quarters, rear porches, with approach ramps Mm -hmm. of the natural pavement. Yeah, and those uh, along the south officers' quarters were just added not too long ago, right? Two About two and a half years ago or two years ago. Yeah. And we'll be doing the same thing to this building as well, to the commanding officer's building too, accessing from the rear. Yeah, now there's, uh, by my count, what, one, only one of our historic structures that isn't handicap accessible? At this time, yep. Are there any plans in the future for that building, which would be the new commissary or HS4? Nothing hard copy, just discussions going on at this point. Yeah, because it is fairly limited. I mean, you have with... uh, Officers' quarters, you got front and back doors with barracks. You don't have that much of a difference to make up. But with that, you got a few steps up there to to get up to the floor level. So I can see how that would be a a big challenge to get that within ADA compliance. We've been talking about so many things that you and your team are responsible for. How do you go about prioritizing tasks for yourself and your team on a daily basis? We have a lovely thing in the Park Service called asset management process, where we already set a priority to our assets, which are our buildings. We rank them from the highest to the lowest. The work that needs to be done will always go to the highest assets first and with an acceptable budget that we have at the time. So if we have a faucet leaking in the visitor center, that's a higher priority asset if the faucet was leaking in the curatorial room of Mike's because the Visitor center is a higher priority than the new commissary. That is so interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. So do, do the priorities of the buildings ever change with time? No. No, they're set. They're oh. pretty much set unless the mission changes of the Park Service, which is established by an enabling legislation. So pretty much not going to change. Okay. So you take your mission statement for the park. Yep. And that leads to your priority on the buildings, and that yep. leads to your then tasking. You incorporate visitor use, visitor, visitors' importance, 
you know, what would satisfy the visitor employee satisfaction as well and need a place to work. You don't want to be having these people working outside in the all the weather. Yeah. Trying to rent a computer that can't be wet, you know, right. that kind of stuff. So that's had, why these buildings get the asset priority that they get. I had no idea. That's fascinating. So say if like uh, if there was something to be done on say the shops or HS three uh, that was on the docket for the day before, but overnight something happened to the visitor center it HS1. Gets pushed back. And if it gets pushed back the entire year, then I write it up into a project in the next year's. Okay. If Just, we, that's how I look at it. If I can't get to it, it needs to be a project. Because I can't, if, there's two reasons why I can't get to it. Money and time. If I don't have mm-hmm. the time, it's better for a contractor to do the work. If I don't have the money, it's better to ask the soft funding projects to fund it for us. Gotcha. Now, where does where do projects lie on that? Most of the projects are things that we could not do in-house to begin with. So that's why they ended up in the projects, one either financially or asset priorities. A lot of our projects will be geared towards the lower priority assets sometimes. Like we have a re- rebuilding all the fences around here. I know we just did a contract for painting them this year. Our funding cycle is five years out, so in about four and a half years, they'll be eligible. The, their project that was written last year is to replace all the fencing. And as you notice, there's a lot of loose boards, a lot of bowing of the fence row, yeah. a lot of you know repair damage from windstorms where we've had to repair sections of the fencing. No. But it's such a low priority. It's not one that I don't. I only do when I have the availability time because it's a low cost the fence itself because it's a lot of time the repairs are replacing it with the same wood we just take down adding one new member or something so the cost is pretty low it's just the time on that one Mm -hmm. now we had a windstorm come through was it december 2021 that knocked down quite a few fences and i know yeah i know we were working for quite a while to get those back up right and as most of you as you saw that process it was when time permitted fence work was done we went and did other stuff when at a higher priority. Then we went back to fencing. Now, with a lot of these things, I know there's sort of like a, a lifespan with uh, shingles on the roofs and, yeah. and fences and things like that. So can you sort of like look forward and see, oh, this is when it was. Yeah, that's part of my project funding to or writing up project or psych, what we refer to as cyclic maintenance is life cycling, life cycling things out last year we or two years ago we replaced the chiller because it was life cycling out plus it was also filling on us replaced the heater because it failed but it was within a year or two of being life cycled out anyway so you can sort of because of the records that we have sort of look right. forward to because of that the program that we use the asset management process out we put in the dates of when we put the equipment in so we know what the industrial standard life cycle is and we go from there it actually has replacement dates in that thing so that you can replace what date. You can start writing a project for what date it needs to be replaced. Now, how long does that, would you say, between when a project is written up as a project uh, to when it's actually completed? I know there's a, a great variance yeah. in time there, but what would you say is the average time? Four, four years between when you write up to when you're actually funded the project, and then it's about a year for execution. Okay. If they're planning and design with an architect or an engineer, it's within two years of execution after being funded. Okay. One year for planning, one design, and then the next is execution of the construction. With keeping the records, it's nice to see, oh, I have this much time before it's going to be actually fixed, so I should 
start yeah. writing these projects Project up now. Tomorrow, yeah. There's a, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking a, a, a lot about the nuts and bolts and finances of your position. I was wondering if we could turn things to the softer side again. And, you know, if, if you were going to give your friends or family a tour of this fort, uh, what would be the favorite thing to show them and what would you tell them about it? The tunnel is always a unique thing to show somebody. It is, it is one of the nicest things to pop in the show. Though I think probably the second forge in the blacksmith would probably be my favorite one to show. It's one that we were able to reconstruct from evidence of ghost lines on the existing interior wall surface to show where the chimney was at. The farm period didn't really alter the blacksmith shop that much. They added on to the south side of it, but they did not tear into the inside that much. So we had some good evidence of where the protrusion of the chimney through the roof line was at with some at where they took the chimney out, they added small boards in back in. So they gave you that pretty much there. And the fact that we were able to build that, have that in use versus continuously having to rebuild or reuse the original forge that sort of like George Washington's axe for chopping down the cherry tree. Yes, it's the original Ford, but it has been rebuilt at least three times since park service has had this property. Yeah. And we don't know how many times it was rebuilt from the fort, from the fort period during the farm period. So it could be that it has a new ax head. It has a new handle. It has a new wedge, you know, right. But that, it's, still, it's still George Washington's hatchet. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's very to the, to the visitor is very difficult to tell what is the original and what is the new. And also the reconstructed one is absolutely an operational forge that's that's yep. used routinely with visitors. So yeah, that's amazing. I like that. And it's actually had a rebuilt table on it now since since it was reconstructed in less than ten years ago. Okay. We had some free thaw cycles on our mortar and it blew the stones apart. There's so, there was some work done on that just last year too, wasn't that's there? That's what I mean. It was okay. the work yeah. table was rebuilt on the forge. So what advice would you have for someone who's interested in becoming a facilities manager at a park? Be malleable as possible. Flexibility. Because you will be juggling your jobs, not only just focusing on one thing one moment. I mean one day it might just just being able to focus for a few minutes before you have to change your focus to another thing. And I, I think that goes for uh, anyone in the, in the federal service, but definitely someone who's managing all these different projects and yeah. and just day-to-day operations as well. So, I mean, like during the, the summer, we got mowing going on, and uh, but then that's also the season for painting, but that's also the season for everything else. So it doesn't ever slow down, it seems like. No, it doesn't. Terrific. I think I think I have uh, one more question for you, and it's it's a bit of an oddball one. So bear with me. Is there any question you wished I asked you that I hadn't, and how would have you answered that? You partially asked it in the last one. What was the facility, the one condition, the one feature that you'd want to be? But realize that the small park units that we have in the service, many positions have a lot of collateral duties that are assigned to it with the expectation that collateral duties are about 20% of your time. This facility position has four collateral duties assigned with it, too. Okay. <laughs> Plus two parks. Mm-hmm. All right, so the math adds up to a different number other than 100. Right. I gotcha. So the 
ability to maintain the focus. You know, that I think is the hardest thing to do in this job is maintaining the focus, not only being malleable to adjust to the situations that are coming up, but trying to maintain focus because that is constantly changing on you. And now you briefly mentioned it, but you not only manage the facilities for here at Fort Larned, but you manage it for Nicodemus as well, right? Nicodemus National Historic Site as well. Which also comes with its own set of challenges. Yes. (laughs) It's an untraditional park. The resources Mm -hmm. up there are not owned. The resources identified in the enabled legislation are the only one is owned by the National Park Service. The other ones are all privately held, either operated through easements or through just has providing assistance while you watch the decay of a structure. And unfortunately, we've seen some of that happen this year. Yes. So maybe we'll have to pick your brain sometime about the challenges in Nicodemus. Yep. But uh, for the meantime, or in the meantime, I should say, uh, for those listening, whether they're local, or I should say in the first part, uh, if someone's local, what are some ways they can help out? And if they're not so local, are there ways they can help out as well? If they wish to volunteer, we can always use volunteers in the maintenance fields, the operational side, the mowing, the snow removal, that kind of stuff, but a lot of painting. We have a lot of painting that we can always use help with. We're we're always willing to develop skills if somebody's wanting to learn skills as well. I mean, we've in the past, we've had four different traditional trades apprentice program applicants here. Uh, We've also had seasonals applicants that were underskilled that learned skills before they moved on. You know, those are things we don't mind training, you know, sharing our education and our experiences with other people to meet the needs of the park or the resource. No, and I've uh, experienced firsthand a couple years ago when you needed help out painting, uh, painting a couple structures and, and all that. And I can definitely attest that there's a lot to be done all the time. And again, as we were talking about priority assets, the stuff that you worked on were the lower priorities. And as you saw, they weren't addressed uh, as often. <laughs> but they're still, I mean, they're still on that list. They still yep. need to be addressed and still need to be taken care of. So yep. what are some ways that folks who aren't so local, what are some ways they can help out? When they come to visit, don't graffiti. You yeah. Know, don't, don't make the worst, the job harder. There you go. Yeah, put, not only put is your it, trash in your trash can, you know. Do do your part to help. Do your part to help. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not only is graffitiing and you get a hefty fine, but you're also permanently damaging the buildings and right. and all that. Well, we thank you for coming on and and sharing a little bit about what you do and uh, giving us some, giving us and giving our listeners some insight. And so we thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you aren't already following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, go ahead and follow us there. Also, check out our website. It has a lot of great resources for you. Also, uh, you know, Cape Hatteras National Seashore was mentioned in this uh, interview. Please go and follow them as well. They have amazing content and, and certainly a bunch to learn there as well. Thank you again for taking a listen. And we will see you next time on Footsteps, the Fort Leonard podcast. Mm-hmm.